actually been in the book of Revelation. I know that because I went to go to my own studies and I went, I can't even remember where we got to. I knew we were like around chapter 14, 15. But we'd finished chapter 15 and we got to chapter number 16. So that's where we're going we're gonna to be tonight. But we'll do a little, t- a little tiny recap just so that we can all at least get a little bit up to speed. Because we've all slept since we were in Revelation. And um, I'm sure over Christmas you haven't been thinking about the seven seals and the seven trumpets and you know plagues and de- death. If you have, probably, you know, I would suggest you need to think about your reading over Christmas period. But we're going to have a look. And so this is where we started was this whole outline of the book of Revelation. And I took you to Scripture and, and said that Scripture is always the best interpreter of Scripture. And Scripture gives us a, an outline for the book of Revelation in Revelation, Revelation one nineteen, uh, where it says, Write the things, this is, this is the revelation to John, uh, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So that neatly divides it down into three sections of scripture. Uh, the things which thou hast seen. So we're going. To, that's chapter number one. Chapter number one is the revelation. So the word revelation, Greek apocalypto, meaning unveiling, revealing. So we talk about it as apocalyptic literature, as and we associate it with the you know earthquakes and all that. But apocalypto is really uh, revealing. It's revealing. And in this case, it's the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, the unveiling of, of who he truly is. So in chapter 1, you have all this great language in, of, of what Christ looks like as as the, the one who is the warrior king, you know. So it's not this fellow, who even that is, I don't know. But, you know, that's not the Jesus, um, certainly of the Old Testament or New Testament or... Uh, Revelation 1, but in Revelation 1 it's a figure closer to, you can't even get to it really, but when you read it, you know, there's a, a there's a beauty, there's a magnificence, there's a holiness, there's a judicialness to him in his, in his kingship. Chapter 2 and chapter 3 are the things um, which uh, are, and these are the letters to the church, so this is the seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor, and you remember we looked at all these this is chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation and Christ has a direct revelation to the, the churches. And we start in Ephesus. So you see Patmos there on your screen. That's where um, John uh, is writing from. He's exiled in Patmos. And then you have Ephesus. That's the first church that's addressed. And then you go around on this, which is effectively uh, the postal route of the time. So this is where the, the trade would flow. Um, and then the first church would get the letters and then it would be passed on and go on in and around uh, that circuit. So, you know, these were real churches at one point in history and um, none of them stand in now, but you can go and see certainly the ruins of them, etc. And Christ has different things to say to the churches. Um, you know, he's a word of uh, commendation for, for most of them. He is a word of condemnation for most of them. Um, some churches get a glowing report um, Church of uh, Philadelphia, for example, is an absolute glow, glowing report from the Lord. Uh, but they were real, real, real churches. And when you're reading Revelation two in chapter three, you have to remember that as John has, has written down this revelation, this unveiling of Christ, these things, um, you know, it's it's in manuscript form, it's in in the written letter, and it goes to Ephesus, and a group of people gathered like you're gathered tonight would sit down. And the, the scroll would be opened and it would be read to them. So you can imagine them sitting there for the very first time, reading that report as the Lord is speaking to them directly. The church of Ephesus where he says, I've got one thing against you, you've, you've left your first love. And speaking of him. And then, you know, you get to the second church and again, it's a letter that's being read. So the church at Smyrna has to listen to what is said about Ephesus before they get to their report and on and on it goes. So again, when you get down the churches and you get to the churches that really there's nothing good to be said about, they have to listen to the other churches first before they get their report. You know, real people listening to the words of the Lord um, all those years ago. Uh, So that's chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapter 4 onwards are the things that shall be thereafter, the things yet future. So we take a futurist position at this church. What does that mean? It means that everything from Revelation 4.1 on in terms of this revelation, this unveiling, we believe are yet future. 
there are other positions. Uh, Preter's position is one where they believe that everything has been uh, fulfilled in the destruction generally of, of Jerusalem. So a lot of the things that John sees from Revelation 4 on, the things we're going to look at have already all happened. Uh, I can't see that in turn, especially we're looking at some of the stuff we're going to look at tonight in Revelation 16. Um, so if we're laying it all out, Revelation 4, you know, we have this, you know, the throne of God, Revelation 5, we have uh, the lamb lifting the scroll. You're going to lay it all out. This is kind of the whole scroll laid out. So you'll see the things which they have seen Chapter 1, the things which are 2 and 3, are a very small proportion of the book of Revelation. And actually, the, the large proportion of it starts there with these seven seven seals, if you like, this scroll. So in Revelation 5, there's this great declaration where John is beside himself because there's nobody worthy. You know, in, in above, below, wherever you want to look, there's nobody worthy to open the scroll. And John literally is is bereft until the lamb steps up and opens the scroll. The, ident- the seven-sealed scroll, this is the kind of picture that is being portrayed through John's language, that the, each of the layers of the scroll, if you like, has a seal, but until the first seal is opened, the others can't be opened. That's a kind of consecutive thing. So when we get into Revelation 6 then, we're dealing with this the, the scroll and the judgment. So in the book of Revelation, the things yet future... There's three sets of judgments. There are the seal judgments that begin it. Then these move to the trumpet judgments. We've already looked at all this stuff. And then finally the bowl of the vile judgments. And they're telescopic in nature. Remember? So what what I mean by that is that the seventh seal, the judgment is actually the beginning of the trumpet judgments. And then the seventh trumpet is the beginning of the bowl judgment so they kind of telescopically come out of one another which brings us all the way to chapter number 16 now along that journey from chapter 4 to chapter 16 there are little kind of per i always get this word i struggle this word parenthetical yeah is that right yes i practiced that i actually did um sections along the way so revelation chapter 7 we're introduced to the 144,000. 12,000 of the 12 tribes of of Israel. Into Revelation 11, we're introduced to the two witnesses. Another little um, section there where it looks at the two witnesses of the tribulation period. Revelation 12 takes an overview of of the history of the the war between God and uh, God's people, dealing with with Israel particularly. Uh, Revelation 12, you have the war in heaven. We, We looked at all that there. Revelation 13, you're introduced to the, the beasts. You've got all the, the players on the board, if you like, that are being introduced then. And then now we're getting all our way back into the narrative. And in chapter number 16, we are dealing with the bowl judgments. So, I said to you to have a little read of uh, chapter 16 and answer my question as to why I refer to this as a great chapter. Anybody got any answer for me as to why it's a great chapter? Yeah, that's good. see that so that's that's good but it's not right <laughs> oh you could try that's good it's not right <laughs> it's not wrong but it's just not what I'm looking for Yes, don't think too deeply. I think that there's a piece where um, where he says, "Behold, I am coming as thief blessed," but it's actually spoken. It's good. <laughs> it's good. It's not what I'm looking for. Last battle. No, yeah. you're thinking too deeply. Give me, I'll give you a clue. Oh, now I see. There's the teacher now. Yes. 
There you go. First one. What do we have? Great voice. First nine. <coughs> Great heat. Verse 12. Great river. Verse 14. Great day. Verse 17, a great voice. Verse 18, great earthquake. Verse 19, great city. Verse 19, great Babylon. Verse 21, great hail. Verse 21, great plague. Uh, I, I, I do, I'm aware that maybe your translation hasn't helped you in that little test, but there you go, nonetheless. It's a, it's, it's, it is full of great things, but there's nothing great about what's going on in the, in the, in the, in the world at this point. So a little bit of a trick, trick question. Because this is, this is, this is, we call this the tribulation period. So the tribulation period, we're referring to a, a seven-year time period when we say tribulation. But that time period is broken into two halves, three and a half years, three and a half years. And in this point, we call great the great tribulation because of the intensity of these judgments. And it is God's kind of consummation of his program and his plan and the things that are that are that are going on. So if I bring up this little thing for you again, this is a kind of a zoom in on the, on the bigger thing that we had before. That we've had these seven seals, we've had the seven trumpets, we've looked at those figures that come in twelve and, and chapter twelve and thirteen, and then you have in the middle you have this this three and a half year point, and then you move into the second half of the tribulation. This is what's called the Great Tribulation. This is the time referred to that happens after the Antichrist breaks the covenant with Israel. He sets himself up in the temple um, and desecrates it, really. Um, this is the last three and a half years. This this coincides, you don't have time to look at this, but this coincides with Revelation 12. When we Remember we looked at the sliding career of Satan and how that he was uh, um, basically banished from the, set, the stellar heavens um, and he knew his time was last... Uh, he didn't have much time left and he was put to the first heaven the earth that's this period so I believe that the fall of Satan to the earth restricted to the earth um, happens um, after the war in heaven and it happens at this point and this is the point then where where the persecution of Israel in, intensifies um, the, the judgments of God intensify everyone's coming to a head and we're going to see this so we're dealing with this great tribulation period. This so uh, Jesus talks about this in Matthew, Matthew twenty four. Um, again, Matthew twenty four contested and and misinterpreted. I think a lot in terms of what it's saying there, but it's it's really it is for the for the Jews and it's for the time of the tribulation. But Christ refers to in Matthew uh, twenty four twenty one. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not in the beginning of the world to this time, nor never sh nor nor ever shall be. And if you're looking in that passage, you'll see that Jesus defines the great tribulation as beginning with the abomination of desolation. That's verse 15. That's that desecration of, of the, the temple. This is referred to in Matthew, or Matthew, Daniel 9. Um, and then it ends in verse 30 of Matthew 24 with Christ's second coming. So he's referring to that three and a half year period that we're entering into now. Um, Daniel references it. Daniel 12.1, at the time Michael shall stand up, the great prince was standard for the children of thy people. Michael is the, the archangel, he is the protector of Israel. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be written in the book. And I think Daniel is referring to this time of great uh, tribulation. Uh, Jeremiah speaks about it. Jeremiah 34, 7. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. So it's referring to this, this time period, um, uh, certainly the seven-year period, but more specifically, the intensified part is the last three and a half years. And these bold judgments, or these vile judgments that we're talking about, are saved for that last three and a half year period, such as the in intensity uh, of them <coughs> so back to Revelation 16 1 it says I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth so when we 
look at the trumpet judgments, you'll find the first kind of four of them are um, they're on the earth, but they're really um, you know in terms of uh, social impact, not individual. Whereas this time, these these judgments are directly directly upon uh, men, and they're upon the earth. Um, J. Vernon McGee says this about reading the the, the book of Revelation sixteen. It says uh, almost <clears throat> after almost a century of insipid, bland preaching from America's pulpits, the average man believes that God is all sweetness and light and would not punish anyone. Well, this book of Revelation tells a different story, and it and it does. God's not to be trifled with. God is a God of holiness. And the wrath that he's pouring out, we're going to see a little bit later, is the law of retaliation. People are getting what they deserve from a holy God, and we'll see that. So, first two, chapter 16, we have the first bowl, or vial, and these are uh, sores. Verse 2 says, And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome, and this is KJV language, noisome and grievous sore upon the beast, or upon the men, which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. So, again, these, this judgment is directly upon people, and the people it's, it's directly upon is those that have took the mark, those that are worshippers of the beast. That means that, to me, reading that, just taking it as it is, that, that believers will be spared from this. They'll, they'll be you know, be spared from this. And um, glad to God for that. But this plague results in harmful sores breaking out upon uh, the beast worshippers. These, these sores are boys familiar language you know from the old testament a lot of a lot of these things are paralleled a little bit from the plagues against egypt in the old testament exodus 9 there where you have the these boils it's the same greek word the greek word uh helkos used in revelation 16 2 for these sores in the septuagint which is the greek translation of the old testament same word used in, in exodus so it's the same type of concept that's going on here it, it's judgment of god I, he's done it before um, and he's doing it again. The difference in the two, from Exodus here to what's going on in Revelation sixteen two, is what. So that the the type of judgment is the same in terms of its boils, but what's the difference between what happened in Exodus and what's happening in Revelation sixteen two? Read in Revelation sixteen two. The first went and poured his veil upon the earth. What do you think is the difference in the judgment? Right. So the, the, the judgments and the plagues were, were localized. Right? It was just Egypt. This this is universal. This is the world. Um that word noisome in the KJV means painfully bad. So you can you know you think about this, you know, again, we read this text but we forget about the the actual how that affects people how that would affect people and and already in a world that you know along our journey in the in the last three and a half years in terms of the, the narrative of the two sets of judgment the seal and the and the trumpet judgments there's been a lot of horrendous stuff happens you know it's, it's not great living conditions and then this happens wearsby says this it's an awesome thought to consider almost the entire population of the world suffering from a painful malady that nothing can cure. Constant pain affects a person's dis disposition so that he finds it difficult to get along with other people. Human relations during that period will be certainly be at their worst. So what's he saying? He's saying, well, when you're in pain, you can be a little bit grumpy. Well, if everybody's in pain, it ain't going to be nice. It ain't going to be nice uh, at all. So that's the first uh, bowl, judgment, sores. Then we get into verses 4 um, to 7. We've got the second bowl, judgment. We have bloody seas. It says, And the third angel poured out his vial. Uh, or sorry, I'm going to skip one. Yeah, first three, sorry. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man. And every living soul died in the sea. So, We've already had, during the trumpet judgments, like a third of the sea life being killed. Mm 
But now, this is this one I'm trying to say that this takes on another level now. Because now, it's it's all. So the poor is vile upon the sea. It became as the blood of a dead man. And every living soul died in the sea. So not only, you know, is it just like a third of the sea length. This is the entirety of, of, of sea length. Nothing can exist in this. You know, if you've been to Israel been to the Dead Sea, you know, you're not going to find any fish in there. You're not, not until they get to the millennium, but that's a different story. But you're not going to find any fish in there. It's, it is dead just because of the, the sulfur content or whatever. Um, you know, swimming in it, it's unique in terms of floats. So boats can't go in it. It's not, it's a lake really, but... You know, if it were a sea, it couldn't function. Nothing could live in it. This is what's going to go on here. It says the sea is going to become like uh, the blood of a dead man. The blood of a dead man is, is um, you know, congealed blood. And, it, you know, it, and when blood congeals, it gets thick and gooey. And this is not going to be the sea as we know it. So, you know, there's definite changes going on here. And, and this will affect the world. There's no sea currents anymore. You can't have sea currents and congealed. Everyone's changing. This is the severity of this can't be under underplayed. So you know this is this is death, death, and death. So the consequence of this judgment is that nothing survives upon the oceans of the world. Vernon McGee says this: the sea is a great reservoir of life. It's teeming with life, and the salty water is cathartic. A purging agent for the filth of the earth. However, in this plague, blood is the token of death. The sea becomes a grave of death instead of a womb of life. Severe judgment. Right, third judgment. This is verse 4 to 7. This is bloody springs. Uh, verse number 4. The third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and the fountains of the waters, and they became blood. So this is the, the feeders into the ocean. This is the, the rivers and the springs. This is this is man's water source. So <laughs> yeah, this is not good at all. What what's going on? You know, God is literally turning the water off. It's severe. It's severe. Of course we need water to live, you know. And I've said this often, I think. The greatest need on earth is is um, not just water, but pure water. You know, there's plenty of salt water out there. It's no good for us. But when the water that we can drink is taken away, it's bad news. It's bad news. Then verse 5, there's a little bit of a break where it says, And I heard the angel of the waters uh, say, Thou art righteous, the angel of the waters. Well, that means to me that God, you know, we live in the super... <laughs> between the natural and the supernatural and around us rages things that we cannot see and that we do not see you know there's Old Testament accounts of that but you know one of the things that we can take for this is that, that God has an angel that's you know looking after the, the water so what does that make me think it makes me think that you know the water that gets to me somehow somewhere it's God given it's grace it's grace God is, you know, and this this common grace where God is allowing humanity to have water, He's now taken away because we're getting to the consummation of the age. It says I heard the angel of the waters say, "They are righteous, O Lord, which art and washed and shall be. You've caused, you've judged us." He says, "You're righteous." You know, this is a declaration. Why at this point does this happen in Scripture? I think because of the severity of it. God has stopped the water supply of humanity. And the angel is looking upon this and he says, God, you're righteous in what you're doing. This isn't disproportionate. You're righteous in what you're doing. Why? Verse 6. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and they have given them blood to drink. Like for like. God's just judgment. They're only getting what they deserve. God is righteous and he's true. 
All right, and so, uh, what time is it? You can look at this concept. We're talking about the angels of the waters. You can look in the, this concept in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You'll find angels over uh, different realms of nature, <laughs> fire and water, etc. Um, Psalms, Hebrews, and then Revelation 7 also. We don't have time to look there, and neither do we. So God, God is, is, is just in what he's doing. That, that's the point. Even though it's, it's an intense judgment, uh, you know, they've killed the prophets, they've shed the blood of the saints. This is what you're going to get. God's dishing out punishment, and it is severe. All right, the fourth bowl, fire, verses 8 and 9. And the angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which have power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him the glory. The fourth trumpet judgment darkened the sun. This trumpet judgment increases the sun's intensity. Um, the people in view are those that are beast worshippers, I believe. Um, power was given him to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with great heat and blaspheme God. Um, these At this point in, the, in this period, there's not many believers left. The, the, the majority of the world have taken the mark of the beast. And here the sun is being used by God and... Uh, you know, there's there's just climactic changes taking place. That's the, the point here in, in terms of what's going on in the world. Um, and again, the sun's heat becoming fierce, much, much hotter than normal. Um, so again, it doesn't give you the, the degrees of the Fahrenheit here. But what we can deduce is that this is above and beyond whatever would be even extreme to us now. Even in the most extreme places on earth in terms of heat, this is on another level because this is a supernatural work of work of God. This is one of the Lord's predicted signs of the times. Uh, if you look in Luke, I'll put it up for you because I'm good. Luke 21, 25. There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations, perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. Um, Isaiah talks about this. Therefore, this is Isaiah 24, 6. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. Isaiah 42, verse 25. Therefore he hath poured upon him the fury of his anger, and the strength of battle, and hath set him in fire round about. And yet he knew not, and it burned him. Yet he laid it not to heart. And of course Malachi. Or the famous Italian painter, Malici. <laughs> no? Oh, dear. All right, Malachi 4.1. For behold, the day cometh, that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that are do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. So, you know, you have these kind of for coming to this the day of the Lord, this great day of the Lord, talking about this, time where we're moving to the return of Christ Christ is coming back that's the consummation of of the age he's coming back to set up his his kingdom and all these signs are being um going on their their judgments also and the severity of them is intensifying every time and we get to the, these ones and you know you've got to remember that we've lost I can't remember when we did the calculations how many of the world's population we'd lost but it's billions of people you know, and you're getting to this point now where the 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 world is 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 you think it's bad now. Where do you see what it's like then? And these great judgments are are you know just can't be anything other than supernatural acts of God. And yet, yet, we read the astonishing words, and I think Elaine touched on this earlier on, and and these are astonishing words. And they repented not. So they blasphemed the name of God. They, I mean, blasphemed his name. So what they're doing is they're recognizing the one who is sovereign over creation. 
but not kneeling to the one that's sovereign over creation. So they're recognizing that God's doing this, and yet still, they refuse to repent and actually blaspheme the name of God. I mean, it's on another level. So they're going to recognize his sovereignty, but they won't honor him as sovereign. So what, what what's going on? What I mean, that's the question we want to ask. What is going on with these people? But to me, it's the principle of, of God giving you over to a hardened heart. This is what's happening. Because when we get to this point, it, it's done and it's dusted. If you remember, I know you, it was a while, but when we were in Revelation 15, before this all happened, the, the, the temple of God in heaven is filled and there's no access to it. Remember I was saying to you that, it, that it's done now. It's done. You know, I mean, even in this life, I, I believe this, you can send away your day of grace. God is not obligated to save you. I, I firmly believe. You know, Old Testament principle is, is Pharaoh. You know, this is the principle. That he's hardening his heart, he's hardening his heart, he's hardening his heart every time. And then God hardens it, and it's done. It's done and dusted. So, you know, deserved judgment can harden a callous heart even more. I mean, that's the danger with people that have been in church or been around the gospel and have heard it and 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 not responded and ignored it and continue to uh, rebel against God, to, to ignore it. That God can say, that's it, you're done. I don't have my board cleaner, I would... I would give you my diagram but let me try and explain it the best I can in terms of how I believe this whole coming to God the Bible's clear nobody can come to God unless God draws them and and I was talking about Paul uh, earlier on we're, we're talking about general revelation that's God drawing everybody so in terms of light of God's light that's a little bit of light the Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sins our sin has separated us from God that's how we're born into this world so if we're to take the analogy that we're in a cave, if, if you like Greek philosophy, this is not Plato's cave. <laughs> this is a, just a cave with no light. And a cave, you can only get in one way, in my cave, one way in, one way out. The entrance is bricked up. You're in darkness, complete darkness. You've no way out of that. But God puts a little pinprick, a little tiny hole in the wall to allow light come through. That's general revelation. You're in that cave. Now you have the opportunity to walk towards that light and to seek more of that light. This is this is common to God. And that's what God intends general revelation to be. He reveals himself. And we are to respond as his creation to the one who has revealed himself by his glorious light. But that choice is ours. Now we could never we could never get to God by ourselves. I want you to understand that. God has to draw us. God has to make the first move. He's the offended party. And God does that and has done that. General revelation. And as we move towards that and we want to know more about God, how do we get out of this cave of our dead trespasses and sins? Then we have special revelation, the word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the written word and the living word. And when we come to save in faith, then God removes all them bricks and leads us out of that cave, our dead and trespasses and sins. That's the path of salvation. But if God reveals that light, and we rebel against that light, and we ignore that light, this is what I believe God does. This is the hardening of the heart. He takes that little gap and he plugs it up again. And now you're in complete darkness. And he doesn't come back. You're done. You're done. This was Pharaoh. Revealed, revealed, revealed. No, rebelled. God says, that's it. I'm done. And when God does that, we're done. We have sinned away our day of grace. God's not obligated to pull us out of that cave. This is grace and mercy. But it's what we're going to do with it. So God is the one who is doing the saving. But we have a responsibility of our own actions. God is sovereign. But no form of God's sovereignty removes our responsibility 
to respond to the sovereign God. So what's going on here in the book of Revelation, Paul talks about this in Romans, is that God has bricked up the cave. And now they're facing the judgment of their sin. And instead of looking to God and crying out to him, instead of realising that they're the ones that have caused the problem, they're the ones that are at fault, they blame God, they blaspheme God. What have they done? They have took on the nature of their God, lowercase g. Satan, who is the one that's the prince and power of the air. He's the one that's in control of the earth at that time. And they've just took on his disposition where they've completely rebelled against God. Thomas says in his book in Revelation, this is the only chapter in the visional or or prophetic portion of the book that speaks of widespread human blasphemy. The other references being to blasphemy from the beast in Revelation 13. These men have now taken on the character of the God, lowercase, whom they serve. They blame God, uppercase g, for the first four plagues rather than blaming their own sinfulness. That's just the human condition when it's allowed to run its natural course and its natural path. Their time's done. Their hearts are hardened. They can't see God. So what do they do? They blaspheme him. Right, fifth bowl, uh, verse 10 there. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast. And his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. So, this judgment is now worldwide darkness. So again, you can see that there's a spiritual application here in terms of what's going on, but there's just worldwide darkness. Um, can you imagine that? I don't, I don't think we can. I mean, darkness, we don't really experience darkness too often proper darkness very very rarely really generally um you know even we go out at night say it's dark but it's not completely dark the, the moon's still there street lights whatever it may be but you know the world goes into darkness um it's hard to even really think about it and comprehend it but that's what happened and this judgment's upon the uh seat of the beast this is upon his rule and his reign and his kingdom and they gnawed their tongues for pain. This just going out of their minds in the agony of this all. So Joel spoke of this in his prophecy, Joel 2, verse 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, sound alarm, my holy mountain, that all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord cometh, it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the morning spread upon the mountains, great people and a strong. There hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. Zephaniah also speaks about this. That is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Nothing good's going on. But yet what do we see again? Verse 11, Revelation 16 because this is it now this is where they are they've been given over to a reprobate heart darkened hardened these judgments there's no way back now this is just God pouring it out I believe and what do they do they blaspheme they repented not for their deeds Falford says this the scriptures plainly refute the notion that wicked men will quickly repent when faced with catastrophic warnings of judgment. When confronted with the righteous judgment of God, their blasphemy is deepened and their evil purpose is accentuated. So again, you know, it's this concept, well, if, you know, we face enough trouble, we'll turn to God. That doesn't bear out in the human heart. Certainly doesn't bear out here. You know, constantly the Old Testament prophets are referring to this day like a day like no other. A day like no other. And we've seen all these judgments. And still that's not enough. Then sixth bowl. Invasion. So this is verse 12 to 16. It says. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. And the water thereof was dried up. 
that the way the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the king of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he shall gather them together in a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. So these final three judgments are all kind of uh, political. This is to do with this great gathering as we head towards what we know as Armageddon. That's what we call it, this great uh, battle that's going to go on. And we have the River Euphrates mentioned. River Euphrates is very, very important in Scripture. Mentioned really um, right from the very beginning in Genesis there. It's also one of the borders of the promise of the land that's going to be given to Israel that's not yet been uh, realized. Um, so we get to this portion of Scripture and we're, we read there that the uh, sixth angels poured out this, that Euphrates has been dried up. Why has it been dried up? That it may be... Um, used by the, the king of the east that there might be a, a, um, a natural roadway if you like to be able to come down uh, into Israel so you're, you know, you're dealing with Euphrates the Babylon area it's just a, a, a natural way for the armies to not to have to deal with the Euphrates river so it's going to be dried up is what we're told then these um, spirits these demons um, lake frogs as it were that go uh out these unclean spirits like frogs that go out to stir up the armies together remember this is the great age of deception uh, demonic deception going on people are pulled into this um, we've got the mention here the false prophet and as he deceives the people um, frogs is used in the imagery you go back to egypt egypt a picture of the world a lot of the typology from egypt translates through in terms of the kind of um, images used um, that's why one of the plagues is with frogs in in, in the, the plagues because each one of those um, judgments from God is a direct attack upon one of the false gods of Egypt So, and one of them is, is the, the frogs so they're also being associated with un, unclean in scripture um, but in Egypt they were worshipped they were uh, venerated um, but biblically they're held up as, as unclean they picture idolatry um, different for the, the Egyptians uh, Hept H-E-Q-T the Egyptian uh, goddess of resurrection had a frog head um, Haptai the god of the Nile is depicted as holding a frog in his hand and you'll see a, a relationship between um, those gods the Egyptians in their kind of primeval history when they look back they they hold to that um, before the world there was a you know this this um, directionless chaos and in this directional chaos there were four frog gods and there were four snake gods so again this whole picture of frogs it's really associated with idolatry and all the things that went on in Egypt um, and Egypt typifies the world when you see Egypt in scripture it's generally a picture of the flesh a picture of the world going on so these demons pictured as frogs they go out uh, the unholy trinity remember Satan's a counterfeiter you know, we've got the, the dragon, the, the, the uh, false prophet, the beast. We've got this um, unholy trinity of Father, Son and Spirit replication going out there. And what's happening is Satan is bringing the armies of the world together. One last move against the people of God. Again, this ties in with Revelation 12. Um, in the middle of this kind of little passage, you've got verse 15 there, where it says... A uh, little break again, which says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keep his garments, lest he walk naked and see his shame. So there's a warning there. A warning that shouldn't worry us, because we won't be there. So the warning there is that the Lord in his second coming, his parousia, his second appearing when he comes to rule and reign, uh, he comes as a thief in the night. Um, but for us, the church... 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2 to 4. Notice what Paul writes. 
For yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord, so cometh as a thief in the night. So he affirms what we've just read here. That the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travaileth upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Why will not overtake us as a thief? Because we are aware of what's ahead, but we know that the Lord is coming for us. And we're exhorted to watch for our blessed hope. We're to keep our heads up, be sober, be watchful. Our Lord's coming. And for the believer, the return of the Lord shouldn't be like a thief in the night. And we can't set the date, I know that. But we're watching, we're waiting for him. You know, if you're up all night waiting for the thief, he, he's not going to get, hopefully he's not going to get too far. Different, different concept. You know, we'll be gone, absolutely be gone. So this great gathering of, of these uh, unholy hordes takes place, verse 16, and they gather them together into a place in the, called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon, Har Megiddo, literally the mountain of Megiddo or the plain of Megiddo. Um, so this is different commentators will go different things you know is it the mine is it the plain i tend to think it's the plain of of megiddo the jezreel valley is is contained here this is where um deborah and barak defeated the canaanites gideon rooted the, the midianites um there are other other things in there problem is though that it's not big enough for this battle so again i agree with thomas when he says the plain of megiddo is admittedly not large enough to contain armies from all over the world. So this must be the assembly area for much larger deployment that covers a 200-mile distance from north to south on the widths of Judea, I'm going to call that, from east to west. Some decisive battles against this massive force will probably occur around Jerusalem. So what he's saying is that the plain of Megiddo, where it's it's a it lends itself to be a good mobilization area for armies. It isn't big enough to be the battlefield. And actually, Scripture tells us that this invading army that comes to Israel, um, a lot of the battles are around Jerusalem. Uh, Zechariah chapter 14 is one of them. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoils shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go forth to captivity. And the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall go forth to give fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. So there's a lot of, a, a lot of these battles take place around Jerusalem. And then the return of the Lord also is to Jerusalem. So here's a picture of uh, from Mount Carmel looking down into this plain. This is a plain of Megiddo. So Mount Carmel, you know, Elijah, the great battle, 2 Kings 19, 1 Kings 19, can't remember. Um, you know, halting up between two opinions. This is happening at the top of this Mount Carmel. Um, one, of the, one of the great things that if you get to go to Israel, I am planning another trip, not, not this year, but it'll be early next year. Or it'll either be um, spring 24 or autumn 24. But one of the things that, that we do, if it's in your first time, we'll take you up to Mount Carmel, where, where this event happened. And, of course, Mount Carmel stands. And if you think about this, you know, Israel has heard about what's going on at Mount Carmel. And it's getting to night. And Elijah's calling down fire from heaven. So, you know, you think about this, you know, anywhere along this valley in the, in the midst of the darkness, you can see from a distance, you've heard that the prophet of God is going to war with the prophets of Baal. This is a standoff between gods. Who's going to win? All the villages are around and all they see is the fire coming down from heaven, uh, illuminating the night. It's beautiful. But anyway, so you're, you're top of Mount Carmel here and you're looking across. This is the Jezreel Valley, Kishon River. You've got Mount Tabor in the distance, Mount Mora, uh, Mount Galboa, uh, Nazareth. But you've got this flap Plains surrounded by, by mountains, and uh, Megiddo is just off to the to the right here, off the off the screen. So what what hap happens here, I believe, is that these armies are gathering, 
they're gathering because they're going south. They're going, well, maybe eastish. They're going down to attack uh, Israel with the, the goal of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the goal. They want to ransack it, take it. All right, uh, next one then. Seventh bowl. We're nearly done with these jolly judgments. Verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. It's done. This final judgment ultimately has the greatest impact of all. It goes into the air. This is the air that we breathe. This voice, presumably God, comes from the throne. Says it is done. And of course, even as I say those words, it is done, we can think about Calvary. But I like this quote from Neil. Men would not have the savers, it is finished on Calvary. So they must have the awful it is done from the judge. This is the reality. Is is <laughs> the uh, dear the ark of God's grace? The door's been closed. The door's been closed. It's done. It's done. And at the sound of this, verse eighteen, and there were voices and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. So you have this mighty uh, earthquake. Uh, what happens? The great cities of the world are affected. Verse 19. The great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of wine of the fierceness of his wrath. God is dealing with Babylon. Remember, Babylon is the uh, antitype of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where God placed his name. Babylon is the place where the devil placed his name. It's the origin of all uh, idolatry and pagan uh, mystery religion. It's all tied back to Babylon, to Babel, to Nimrod, the first organized Satan worshipper. It all ties back to there. Remember Babel, Genesis 11, you know, we read in Sunday school that they were trying to build a ladder to heaven. It's a center of astrology. If you, any of you got Netflix? No? Okay. Uh, there's a program on Netflix at the minute. I'm not recommending it as, as any kind of authority of truth. But what is interesting, you'll find, it, it's, it's called Ancient Apocalypse or something. And it's about this, this guy who has is, is come away from mainstream archaeology. And he's gone round the world and he's seen all these temples that point to the, you know, in his words, that ancient people were very advanced. Against the narrative is that we grew from the, the goo through the zoo to you, and we worked our way through that, against that narrative. So he sees all these kind of like temples all over the world that are built in amazing ways, you know, ingenious ways, you know, you think about pyramids and stuff, but older than that. And also he's tying in this narrative that there's a common story about a great flood. So he's, he's, he's connecting all these dots but he's not getting the biblical truth. But one of the things you'll find with a lot of these things, they were all these kind of um, things that were built, they were built to worship the stars. You'll find that they are the same as Babel. They're mini Babels. That's all they are. Babel was a, was a center of astrology, an open top, so they could worship the stars. And I've told you about God's warning about worshiping the stars. So, you know, uh, Islam, it's the moon god. The Egyptians, sun, the moon, and the stars. The Romans, sun, the moon, and the stars. You know, Wicca, all of it. You know, all, whatever kind of druidism. All you go, what it always points up to the the stars. So you'll see these things. So Babylon represents all of that, and God's going to turn His focus upon uh, Babylon, and it is going to be destroyed through these phases. This is just a preview of what's going to happen. In chapter seventeen and eighteen, and a little bit of nineteen. We're going to deal with that but the fall of Babylon is a central teaching Thomas again says the fall of Babylon is a central teaching of the seventh bowl it's an event already announced in Revelation 14 8 we had it declared prefigured in the harvest in, in 14 14 to 20 
The stages in Babylon's downfall come in 17, chapter 17, verse 16, 18, verse 8. The ultimate collapse is at the return of the Lord there, 19, 18 to 21. So, you know, this great anti-type is, is destroyed. This great earthquake, that like nothing before. And another little side note about the earthquake, if you look in verse uh, 20, says, And every island fled away. The mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God, oh my goodness, because of the plague of the hail, and the plague was exceedingly great. First of all, I mean, look at verse number 20. Every island fled away. This is this topological change. Everything's changed. And so horrific is this. That it, you know, I mean, the world's already been changed. I believe it's been tilting its axis a little bit when we get to this point. Just the severity of the judgments have gone before. But now this, this, this topographical changes. Just like there was when the flood came. When the mountains of the deep erupted and, and things were changed. What's happening? We're starting to go back. Where are we going back to? This whole thing. You know, you take from the Garden of Eden, the separation, you go through history, the cross, from the cross on, you're working back to Edenic conditions. So now you have these changes taking place. The mountains can't be seen. What does that mean? They've been flattened. Flattened. The, the islands have changed. What do it mean? That things have shifted. What's going on? We're heading towards the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. When you read about the millennial kingdom in Ezekiel and other places, things are different. They're moving back to where the garden is. So part of, even in this judgment here, the severity of it, dealing with the, the finalities of the rebellion of mankind, that God is still preparing the way for the kingdom that's coming. He's changing things. Getting back to those uh, conditions. Um, that are coming then just finally that there is this great hail says the weight of a talent um, nothing nothing good in that at all you know uh, a talent roughly 135 pounds nine and a half stone roughly what I weigh <laughs> naughty naughty <laughs> he said you wish did you say <laughs> <laughs> not uh yeah but what's the res what's the result again blaspheming god not crying out for repentance so far is the human heart and i'll quote neil we cannot emphasize too strongly that in the three sets of divine judgments first the seals second the trumpets third the vows or bowls of wrath, we have those preliminary hardening actions of God upon an impenitent world, by which He prepares the world for the great day of wrath at Christ's coming as King of Kings, as seen in Revelation nineteen verses eleven to fifteen. So here's a final overview for you. Church is gone, praise the Lord. We've gone through the first three and a half years of tribulation. The people on earth. We get to the midpoint and then we have these bold judgments. Uh, boils, blood in the sea, blood in the rivers, darkness upon the throne of the beast, scorching of the sun, the drying up of the Euphrates, the earthquake, the hail. And it's all in preparation for the coming and the return of the Lord. So we'll leave it there tonight. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll get into Revelation 17 and uh, deal with Babylon a little bit more. We'll maybe ex uh, expand upon some of the things I talked about tonight and look at the misty religions of Babylon. But the king's coming. We're getting closer and closer to the return of the king. And uh, hopefully, hopefully, we'll get through this and be a little bit more enthusiastic about our evangelism. Because, you know, regardless of timing of this, we wouldn't want our worst enemy to go through this. And we're the ones that can, or should be, sounding the alarm. That's our, that's our responsibility, and that's our duty. Let's shout the gospel where the gospel can be shouted. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you 
for what you revealed. We thank you, Lord, that as your church, as your people, as your body will not experience the wrath of God again. The body of Christ suffered the wrath of God upon Calvary's cross and will never do so again. And we thank you for that. But Lord, we do pray that you would help us, encourage us to be better and bolder in our witness, that we would share uh, Christ with others wherever we can. We don't want um, anybody to face the wrath of God. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a angry God. So Lord, I pray you would help us in this. I pray you would give us travel and mercies as we travel home. Bring us back on Sunday, Lord, as we gather together as your people, as your body. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.